know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to have the opportunity to speak with Professor Rick Keller, Professor of the History of Medicine and Bioethics at UW-Madison. His research and teaching speaks directly to so many of the pivotal issues confronting American politics and society today, including COVID-19, the intersection of race and medicine, and he is currently at work on a project examining the global history of the environment. We wanted to talk to Professor Keller about the global pandemic, race, and the recent wildfires raging across the American Northwest. Let's just start with a little bit about yourself and your teaching and research interests. And I'm also kind of curious as to what set you on the pathway towards becoming a professor and studying this area of work. What kind of led you down this career and research path? That's a great question, Sam. Thanks. I have always been really fascinated by European history in particular, in particular modern history, I should say. And when I was a a sophomore in college, I read Albert Camus' novel, The Plague, which is set in French colonial Algeria. It's just a brilliant novel, which it's largely allegorical about the German occupation of France during the Second World War. But it's also a really good story about how uh, society copes with a pandemic crisis, ever more relevant uh, even today, right? So that's what, that kind of combination, right? Being really intrigued by modern European history and then being really fascinated, really captivated by this novel in particular, kind of led me down a rabbit hole of being really fascinated by the history of European medicine and public health. And so, you know, long story short, that's uh, that's how I got here. I'm so interested to hear about all the different facets of your research and your work, Professor, but I also know you've written a book called Fatal Isolation, the Devastating Paris Heat Wave of 2003, and in it you talk a lot about like the global history of the environment. Can you give us a little bit of context about like what the current moment looks like in the greater context of like global environmental history? Sure, absolutely. I think we're facing a moment of intersecting global crises, some of which are related to each other, but all of which are overlapping. So I think we can take these in turn and let's look at what's happening environmentally right now. We cannot look on a merely local scale. I think we need to think globally about precisely what's happening with climate. We're looking at record high temperatures in Brazil for September in the in the Amazon. We're looking at fires tearing through the Amazon. Of course, we know about fires tearing through the American West. Think about the crisis that immediately preceded our awareness of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is the wildfires in Australia. This is something that is not merely local, but what we're seeing is local impacts of global climate crisis. Now, one can never look at a single fire or a single extreme weather event and say, oh yeah, this is climate change. But what we can do is look at the trends. And the trends themselves are unprecedented, even if many of these extreme crises themselves individually are not. Is this kind of the new normal that we're entering in, like a new normal of 
extremely devastating wildfire seasons or, you know, pretty soon we're going to start seeing extremely devastating flood seasons in a lot um, more parts of the United, or not just the United States, but the world. Is this the new normal that we're going to be seeing? I hope it isn't, but I am afraid to say I think it probably is. What worries me is precisely that, right? That we're looking at what is essentially a new set of norms. The shifting of norms I find far more disturbing than record-breaking temperatures or record-breaking fires in terms of their their scale uh, or record-breaking floods. I think as a nation in particular, maybe maybe humanity in general, but I think Americans in particular are really obsessed with records. Records grab the headlines, they grab our attention, right? I'm not worried so much about a record-breaking temperature as I am about a whole series of days that are the second highest temperature ever recorded, right? As a new normal. It's that shifting average that leads to those record-breaking individual events or individual temperatures or single fires and so on that is really truly concerning. It's that bending of norms. I know you folks are in political science and we're seeing a bending of norms in, in terms of American politics every day too. I'm not trying to say that these have anything to do with each other necessarily, but it is something that I think is really quite disturbing to see in, in terms of the climate crisis. I had a piece in the Washington Post in the summer of 2019, uh, just, to, just over a year ago, that looked at this in terms of European heat waves. What happens is, as you see record-breaking temperatures every year, as you see record-breaking mortality levels every year, those records and the significance of them start to fade away. Because we tend to think about records in terms of, you know, how do they compare against the most recent averages? And as those recent averages get so high, then the extremes that we're witnessing start to appear like a new normal. And so again, that's, it's that new normal of what we would have considered absolute extremity 10 or 15 years ago that I find just so utterly concerning. I am right there in the same boat, finding it absolutely concerning. Now, especially this year, have you found that some of these really important environmental stories in the news are being overshadowed by other things that are happening, you know, in the United States or around the world? And we're not necessarily like media analysts, but there's a, there's a lot of talk in the journalism community about like gatekeeping and the flow of news and the defining of what is newsworthy on any given day. So like, what, what have you been seeing in the media about, you know, the newsworthiness of the environment, especially in the context of the rest that's going on in 2020? That's a, a, another great question. Um, you folks have really done your homework. Uh, I, I would say that, you know, there have been so many impor- important stories this year. And so, you know, granted, the California wildfires, uh, or I should say the, the wildfires in the American West, have to some extent been overshadowed by really shocking political news or news coming out of protests or the constant assault on black Americans that we're seeing, certainly not beginning with George Floyd, uh, but you know, kind of culminating this summer with the, the issues around George Floyd and Jacob Blake and Breonna Taylor and the Breonna Taylor decision in particular, to argue that climate is a more important story than the big story of racial justice in the United States, that's not an argument I would necessarily make. I think what we're seeing is a limited amount of bandwidth and a lot of really compelling 
utterly critical stories. And so some things are fading into the background while other things are coming to the fore. So I wouldn't necessarily say that we're losing the story of climate, um, but I do think that in terms of our attention span, we need to try to make room for it and, and try to you know, walk and chew gum at the same time, essentially. Try to uh, you know pay attention to more than one evolving critical story. But you know, given the, the kinds of pressures we're all under these days, students trying to do all of their coursework online, faculty trying to teach all of their coursework online, parents struggling with the economy. This is this is a difficult moment for everyone. To follow up on that, does that then kind of make you concerned with the timeline in terms of dealing with climate change? Because as you're talking about, it's not necessarily that these other issues that are kind of muscling out coverage on climate change aren't, say, worthy or aren't as important, but just maybe they're they're more immediate. And But that might even not be fair to say with climate change. But, you know, the, the pandemic, we can see that the, I guess, peak of some of its effects are happening now. And of course, as you said, um, over the summer with the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, shootings of Jacob Blake, that seems to be the new culmination of these other issues in policing and structures of white supremacy in the United States, that maybe the impacts are more immediate. But does that then concern you with the timeline in terms of climate change? Yeah, it's an interesting framing. I mean, Climate is certainly a long-term problem. I think structural injustice is also a long-term problem, right? Uh, even though it had, you know, we're seeing acute flare-ups of this right now, I would argue that the kind of violence that we've seen, the kind of state-sponsored violence that we've seen, to to be quite frank, is essentially the wildfire. You know, what, what, we're, what we're seeing is, in terms of these acute instances of state-sponsored violence, I think we're seeing a parallel to something analogous to the way in which a fire is a sim symptom of climate change. They're both long-term concerns. I think the time to act on climate is not now, I think it was 20 years ago. And so, you know, to think about uh, whether we act today or whether we act tomorrow, we needed to act yesterday on climate. What we need to be thinking about now are mitigation and adaptation rather than prevention. The climate is changing, right? There is no doubt about this. There are certain acts, actions that we can take as individuals to try to reduce our own footprints. Um, but at the same time, really, we need as a global community to begin to act in unison um, in order to both mitigate and to adapt. I think that's a better way of, of framing it. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. So on another note, people, myself included, and I'm sure you lose sleep over this all the time, but what can we look at in this situation to be hopeful about? I think one of the things we're, we're seeing that's really quite encouraging is expanding awareness. I think a lot of people have been really oblivious to a number of the crises that we've been facing for years now, right? Whether it's the crisis of police violence, whether it's a crisis of climate change and its acute local phenomena, I think what we're seeing is people are increasingly aware and increasingly aware that we need to do something about it. And so it, we're seeing in a small but significant action on really important levels. We're seeing companies begin to understand that they need to approach implicit bias and need to approach what I read one company called our own oblivious racism, not obvious racism, but oblivious racism, the, the racism that's inherent in, in implicit bias and beginning to think about reparations pricing in the products that they sell. I read a, a piece about a bicycle company that is starting to offer discounts as a means of, of offering reparation to African-Americans. Really, really fascinating. 
in a lot of ways. And I'm finding some of these, you know, admittedly small scale moves that aren't going to radically, they're not going to revolutionize the world, but they're showing some movement that I think is really encouraging. That is something I had never heard about, like some small scale reparations like that, like super community based. That definitely makes me feel better. And it feels like a definite step in the right direction. Yeah. And, you know, there, another instance that I, I found kind of encouraging is I've, I've heard rumors that the Trek Bicycle Co Corporation is going to be opening community-based bike shops in every state as a means of, of trying to diversify the industry and to try to kind of make a move toward repairing some of our history. I, I don't know the extent of that, and I don't know uh, how quickly that'll happen, but it's a really encouraging sign, I think, from a local Wisconsin company. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they're bringing people together in more ways than just by selling tandem bicycles. <laughs> Let's hope. Now, now that we're kind of in the realm of, say, policy or social change and environmental change, in the context of environmental history and policy, if you could just wave a magic wand and make either state or federal leaders take on either a or like a series of necessary steps to address the most immediately important climate issues, what would you have them do? And that's, I guess, another way of asking, like, what do we need to do now that we aren't doing? Yeah, that's um, another great question. So I think that on both small and large scales, there are lots of moves that municipal, state and, and federal leaders could be making that could could initiate some real change. If one person stops driving to work and starts riding a bike to work, that's not going to save the world right? If everybody does it, it could start to make a pretty significant difference. So I think the kinds of moves that we've seen in transforming urban states as a fun pandemic, as fewer people have been riding mass transportation. Um, we've seen cities like New York, for example, cities like Paris, a number of places have basically initiated car-free zones in, in the city. And what that's done is it's given busy streets over to pedestrians and bicyclists. And, you know, granted, when winter rolls around, I think we'll see a, a shift away from that. But weather permitting, this has made a pretty significant difference in terms of how we inhabit urban space and in, in terms of what we can do to reduce local level pollution, greenhouse gas emission, and so on. I think on a larger scale, we need to be thinking about carbon emissions as a big picture problem and thinking about incentives that we can offer for large corporations to begin to scale back their, their emissions, but also you know, think about really policies and directives that can not just incentivize, but effectively mandate <laughs> carbon reductions, because I think that's, that's where we are. And again, as I indicated a, a moment ago, I think we also really need to be thinking about adaptation because I think the genie is to some extent out of the bottle and we need to really think about what we can do to adapt to a changing climate. There was a piece in the New York Times Magazine, maybe I think two weeks ago, about climate-based migration becoming a reality in the United States. This is something that I've been teaching about in my global environmental health course for 10 years as a problem primarily in developing countries, but increasingly, we're going to see climate-based migration happening in the U.S. as people begin to flee these fire zones in the West and begin to look to places which have stabler climates, less volatile climates, and places that have more secure water supplies. So this is a very much a problem, not just in developing countries, but in the industrialized world as well. So what we need to be thinking about is how, as 
Americans, right? How the, the American government can respond to what's I think going to become a really acute need to manage the migration of the population to new places in the coming decades. This is not gonna happen in the next couple of years, but I do think within two or three decades, we're going to see major population shifts in the US. A lot, a lot of very, very good points and, and, and things to think about there. But you also mentioned that there maybe are some actions that people as individuals can take as well. And, you know, we are, of course, with the UW-Madison Political Science Department thinking about the student perspective. Is there anything that specifically, say, students or just the average citizen could maybe do to prevent the environmental devastation of the country and planet? It's a tall order to ask a, uh, an individual, especially uh, you know a young person, to to make on their own. You know, uh, of course, there are actions we can all do to reduce our carbon footprint and and the the ecological space that we take up and and our broader impact. But one thing that I would suggest, maybe to to think outside the box a little bit, is you know a little bit less about biking to work and a little bit more about community interaction as something that we can each take on as an adaptation strategy. You had mentioned uh, earlier that, uh, you know, I I, uh, published a book a few years ago called Fatal Isolation about um, this devastating heat wave that remains the worst natural disaster in modern French history in terms of mortality, a crisis in which 15,000 people died in just over two weeks in August of 2003. And this in the country that had, according to the World Health Organization, the best public health system in the world. So how does that happen? What happens largely as a function of social isolation. The kind of people who die during heat waves are people who live in isolation, people who are alienated from their community in one way or another. So I think one thing that we can all do is promote a a, a bit more social solidarity, engage a bit more with citizens around us, be in touch with people of all ages in our community, to ensure that that kind of social alienation, that kind of isolation doesn't put more people at risk than it has to. So that's a, you know, not about necessarily saving the world, but it is about mitigating some of the effects of dangers like extreme heat that we're increasingly facing in the United States and and globally. Yeah, you bring up an excellent point in that with the idea of social solidarity and, you know, that comes along with like collectivism and standing in juxtaposition of the modern American rugged individualism kind of approach that a lot of people subscribe to. I'm going to pivot now. Um, all of that in context, I kind of want to, we kind of want to talk about all of this in the context of the pandemic. And, you know, especially pulling on your expertise as a professor of history, of the history of medicine. We kind of wanted to get your insights as a historian on the global pandemic, which has, you know, created a uh, a very new and very different new normal for us. And it's mm-hmm. interesting to say new normal again in the context of COVID and maybe not necessarily in the context of the environment. But, you know, we're seven months in. Is there a historical precedence for the polarization and the politicization of this that we're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. What really comes to mind is the AIDS crisis uh, in the 1980s. Everyone is, not everyone, but Lots of people look at the COVID-19 pandemic and they look for the historical precedent of the 1918 influenza pandemic. And for very good reason, right? This this was a a global pandemic, an airborne transmitted virus. There are all kinds of really good reasons to look at the flu pandemic uh, as the big historical precedent. Just to think a little bit differently about things, I think AIDS offers a really useful 
counterexample of an important precedent for what we're going through. It was a pandemic that polarized the United States. It polarized Europe and it's polarized uh, essentially every place it has touched down. It's a, a pandemic that many argued wouldn't really affect them, that has, uh, that has primarily affected quote unquote others. You know, it's something that affected gay Americans uh, to begin with, men who had sex with men primarily uh, in the, the earliest days of the pandemic or the earliest days in which we were aware of the pandemic, I should say. It has uh, historically targeted African-American communities much more extensively than white American communities in the United States. And now of course it's become primarily a disease of the developing world. You know, what you ask what keeps me up at night, I worry about the future of COVID-19. I worry about a future in which we may have developed a vaccine, which, which may or may not come to pass, or where we've developed effective treatment, but that treatment is only available to some and not to others. And I'm worried about a pandemic that will retreat from global view because it will begin to affect already marginalized communities disproportionately. It already is affecting those communities disproportionately. But what I fear is that it will retreat almost exclusively to those communities as a function of a lack of availability of vaccination and a lack of availability of treatment. So what I'm worried about is if you think about what's happened with the opioid epidemic or what's happened with, with meth in the United States, where it's been something that has overwhelmingly affected rural communities as a, a, you know, a kind of crisis leading to so-called deaths of despair. I worry about COVID-19 doing very much the same thing in the United States. I worry about COVID-19 globally doing what AIDS has done, uh, becoming something that is primarily now affecting developing countries who will face this as just a condition of their existence, as opposed to an admittedly significant crisis that we're facing right now. Yeah, I, I can't say I had thought of it in that context, and that is terrifying. <laughs> that is pretty terrifying. You know, I, I say this as somebody who grew up in the 1980s. You know, I came of age in the 1980s. So, uh, you know, I was, what, 11 years old in 1980. I was, you know, I turned 20 in uh, 1989. This is, it was a weird time to grow up, right? I mean, I guess every time is a weird time to grow up. But, uh, you know, AIDS was essentially the background of my adolescence. And, you know, clearly it's, it's informed my thinking as an adult as well and as a professional who thinks about epidemic disease on a daily basis. But it is something that I think, it, you know, casts a long shadow and something that uh, I think has the capacity to you know, influence our thinking about COVID-19 as well. Obviously, they're very different in terms of their transmission. Um, you know, there's a, a host of really important differences here. But another, um, sorry to get all dark again, but, uh, you know, another important aspect of HIV AIDS is, you know, we've, we've been facing HIV AIDS for 40 years now, and we're nowhere closer to a vaccine than we were 40 years ago. And so, you know, this notion that everything will return to normal once we develop a COVID-19 vaccine places a lot of optimism right? And the idea that we will develop a vaccine sooner rather than later. There are also important reasons why we haven't developed an HIV vaccine, which may or may not apply to COVID-19, right? Again, completely different kinds of viruses, a retrovirus versus a coronavirus and, and a whole important series of differences. So I'm not trying to draw that parallel, but the idea that because we decide to create a vaccine, we will create one does not always come to pass. So then just overall, are you hopeful about the prospects of a COVID-19 vaccine or not really? I, I have a kind of tempered optimism 
I am guessing that what we'll eventually wind up with, and I am not an immunologist, okay? Um, so I'm, I'm not trying to make, I, I'm, I will stay in my lane here, but my best guess based on what I've been reading is that I think that if we're lucky, we'll come up with a seasonal vaccine, uh, something like an influenza vaccine that provides some kind of limited protection, but is something that we will need to, to get regularly. Again, we don't know nearly enough about the long-term immunity conferred by coronavirus infection, uh, COVID-19 infection, um, to know whether this will last or not. We also don't know how quickly the virus itself is mutating. You know, when you get a cold, very, uh, com the common cold is often caused by a, a kind of coronavirus. And of course, we know we get colds all the time, right? Just because you get a cold, you're you know healthy for a few weeks, then you get another one. So you get a short-term immunity when you get many coronavirus infections, but not a long-term immunity. So we'll have to, we'll just have to see what, um, what vaccine development looks like. But my best guess right now is that we are probably looking at something like a seasonal vaccine like we have for flu. And then even if there, that vaccine is developed in one form or another, there is kind of a historical context for the rejection of vaccines in the U.S. and other places around the world. How do you think that might play out in the United States today in regards to a COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, I, I, you know, this is one place where a, a really polarized political community is again, um, a, a dangerous environment to live in, right? A dangerous human environment because many will be distrustful of a vaccine for one reason or another, whether they see it as, as coming from big pharmaceutical interests or whether they see it coming from a, a politician seeking reelection or you know, it depends on how people understand the vaccine. I would say that historically, while anti-vaccination has been a, a really important thread, people have really overwhelmingly in the past couple of hundred years accepted rather than rejected vaccines on balance. So I would hope that a sort of anti-vaxxer take is minimal as it has been historically. Anti-vaccination gets a lot of attention. It is incredibly important in specific regions where you do see explosions of diseases like measles and whooping cough that are easily controlled by vaccines. Polio is another example where there is localized yet isolated resistance. But again, the vast majority of the world has eagerly accepted the MMR, has eagerly accepted polio vaccine, has eagerly accepted uh, the diphtheria and pertussis vaccines. So I have a, a kind of cautious optimism about the eventual acceptance of a COVID-19 vaccine. But a vaccine, in order to gain acceptance, needs to be effective, it needs to be safe, and it needs to be trusted, right? You know, the scientific communication here, I think, is going to be really critical in fostering the acceptance of uh, any vaccine we might eventually develop. I think those are all very, very good points. And then the last thing I want to touch on on vaccine, just to quickly tag out with, is that the New York Times and a couple of other outlets have reported that there are some scientists that are giving themselves and their families like an early version of the vaccine or say like an, ex an experimental cocktail that they're hoping will constitute a vaccine. Is this like unusual historically? Has this happened before? Is this kind of like normal in terms of when novel diseases arise or viruses arise? Or is this totally weird and unprecedented. Now, this is actually pretty normal. You know, kind of self-experimentation is a, a time-honored tradition in the scientific community. So either self-experimentation or experimentation on subjects 
who are to hand, so to speak, um, subjects who are available. That's led to some really egregious ethical violations in the past. I'd suggest you talk to my colleague, Sue Letterer, department chair in medical history and bioethics, who has written extensively on the history of human experimentation and the ethics of human experimentation. If you want the real kind of straight dope on that, but but no, this is not something terribly new. I guess we can kind of point to Henrietta Lacks on that point. Yeah, well. Henrietta Lacks is a, uh, an important case. If you look at historically, the most one of the most successful vaccine development stories is the polio vaccine story, right? This, this is a story where, you know, we see a completely radical new approach to vaccine development, where largely the effects of polio or what was probably polio on uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president of the United States, and his really significant connections and elite American community basically changed the nature of giving, of charitable giving in the United States overnight with the creation of the March of Dimes Foundation, where there was this emphasis placed on really small scale donations as opposed to big philanthropic commitments from, from elite Americans exclusively to you know, achieve the development of a vaccine within about 20 or 30 years. This was breakneck speed. This was a, a kind of light speed vaccine development for the early 20th century. And it's one where a group of scientists set out to do something and they, they actually accomplished it. In many scientific discoveries happened by accident. This is one that happened on purpose. And it changed the structure of charitable giving. It changed the structure of the American university by inventing a new model for research funding. And it also introduced a whole series of ethical crises. Jonas Salk, the uh, developer of the inactivated or injected polio vaccine, tested the vaccine initially on mentally disabled children in an orphanage in Pittsburgh. He didn't get consent of the parents. He didn't get consent from any family members. He got the consent of the orphanage director. They were available subjects to him. And this is, again, a, a horrific ethical violation. Even by the standards of the 1950s, this was an ethical violation by, by anyone's guess. And, you know, it's become sort of a footnote in the development of a huge American success story, but one we need to pay close attention to. M most definitely, especially considering some of those things we were talking about earlier about how effective and scientifically, I guess, kosher the vaccine needs to be in order to be accepted. The last thing we want to ask you today is that, you know, we've been talking a lot about these kind of doomsday world is on fire, either figuratively or literally topics. But as a historian and a global citizen, what makes you hopeful about the next decade or even the next century? What are you looking forward to? You know, just increasing awareness and activism. You know, we're all recognizing the, the role that we're playing in our communities. And as we become increasingly responsible about that role, as we become increasingly engaged, you know, I have real hope for the future. I have hope for a generation of, uh, you know, younger Americans and global citizens who have the capacity to make real change, to insist on real change. I think ultimately we have to recognize that change, you know, can be moderate and slow. And as long as we don't lose patience, we can help to foster that change. But I think it's really critical that we all remain engaged and, and I'm hopeful that we can. Sweet. Do you have any parting words or final advice before we wrap up? Just, just keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is an amazing maxim. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Keller. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to participate. 
For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other. Thank you.